Well, good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Colossians, where we are in week two in this new series. Today, the text before us is Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. And so if you would, follow along with me as I read and begin us in verse 9 and verse 10, where God's Word says this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of our Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you would honor the teaching and the reading of your word. Father, we know that your presence is here. Would you change us and make us into the people that you want us to be? For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that I love so much about the book of Colossians is its simplicity oftentimes, and yet its structure can come across as quite complex at times. But yet in these simple verses that we see Paul finding himself in prison, hearing bad news about a people that he's never met before, but a people that he deeply loved. A people who had a reputation of doing good things and pursuing the Lord and, and seeking to be worthy and to live a life that was worthy of the gospel in all things. Yet they had found themselves in the middle of a, of a hiccup, if you will. They had found themselves being infiltrated by a group of people that were teaching another gospel, a false gospel. And so Paul writes pastorally with great concern and every right to be concerned. And he begins to speak to a people that he has never met, but he deeply, deeply loves them. And he reminds them of several truths in this passage today in verses 9 through 14, namely what it means to walk in a manner that's worthy in a, in a way that fills you with his knowledge and his understanding and, and knowing and being able to discern and decipher what God's will is for their life. Do you know that I can stand before you today just as the Apostle Paul did as he sat in that prison cell and to say emphatically that, that I do in fact know God's will for your life. I know it succinctly and, and I know it has great purpose and that will is to be transformed into the image of his son. That this is God's will for his people. That we would come before his word and we would humble ourselves before him. And, and each and every time that we do that, we would be made new and transformed over and over. And we would look a little bit more like Jesus every single time that we do. But what I want you also to see this morning is the prayer life that encompassed Paul and how he prayed and what he actually prayed for. And then I want to line it up against perhaps how we often pray and, and perhaps what our own prayer life looks like and maybe how it should change. And Paul says, I've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. A common question that I've gotten over 18 years of ministry, oftentimes from younger folks, from high school students or even collegiate students is how do I know and how do I discern what it is that God wants me to do with my life? How do I know his will here in this moment? Well, I think there are two uh, strategic and even helpful questions to sort of discern that. Number one, just simply being where is the spirit of God moving in my life? Where is he working amongst me? And as my eyes are up and I'm looking before his people and the needs in my community, where do I see God moving? But yet in the midst of that, we always, if we're looking, we will always see great need. 
to be filled with a knowledge of his will, understanding that it's a, a path of obedience. It's a track of obedience. Where is he moving in my life? But there's simply no way for one person, not one person in this room to be responsible for every single thing within the mission of God. And that's why the way God works, he reveals to each of us what part of the mission is ours. What role we would play in the broader scheme of God's kingdom and what it is that we would do. Some Christians are called to poverty relief and ministering to the homeless. Some are called to places like Mercy Clinic and Crisis Pregnancy Centers. Some are called to fostering and, and adopting. Some are called overseas to faithfully go. And some are called just to be faithful in their workplace to be a faithful presence where God has put them, but no one believer can do it all. And I think encompassed in the idea of being filled with the knowledge of his will is this understanding that in his will, not everything that comes your way has your name on it. And I think for many of us who perhaps are people pleasers, who perhaps someone can bring a need to us, we can become overwhelmed and we take on more than, than we actually are capable of. Just yesterday, I was uh, required to go to a, uh, a, a meeting of parents for my son's football team at his school. And we listened to the coach uh, give his uh, speech and his talk. And then we watched as several ladies who were in charge of the booster club come up there and they began to, to list off all the needs. And she began to explain how they're divided into all these different tracks. And within the football team, the varsity team, there were eight or nine different tracks that, that families could serve in. And there was this intention and this expectation that all families would be involved and serve in one track. And I am so thankful to God that my sermon was written before I ever entered into that meeting because every time she would say, here's an opportunity for you to serve, I would just simply say, Drew, Lord God, not everything that comes your way has your name on it. And she explains track one, and I just simply said, that doesn't have my name on it. She explained track two, and I said, that certainly does not have my name on it. She explained track three and track four, and we got to track five, and I said, well, I'll put my wife's name down on that one. <laughs> Where the Spirit of God is moving in our life is a way that perhaps we can discern what it means to be full of the knowledge of his will. But secondly, and, and perhaps most importantly, is the question, what is the word of God saying to the church? You see, I believe wholeheartedly that, that God is trying to show us that our most significant factor in discerning the knowledge of his will is emphatically the word that he has given his people. And if you never properly discern what his word is, then, then your life will be run and dictated by how you feel in life rather than what it is God has explicitly stated. You'll never accurately interpret what he's doing in your life until you understand what he's doing here on earth, here in the midst of his people through his word. But I want you to notice something else about this beginning part of this letter. Paul is writing and he's making this prayer and he's praying not over an individual, but rather he is praying for the well-being of the church. 
He's writing to a group of people who who have been called to a specific location, gathered for a specific time, for a moment, this side of the cross. And and he prays for those people corporately, and he prays for them collectively. It's a prayer for the church, not for the individual. And so, from the day that he heard about them, he has not ceased to pray for them collectively, asking that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. We spoke last week very briefly about this group of individuals who had begun to infiltrate the church, this group called the Gnostics. And they were teaching that Christ was a good place to begin, but if you wanted to attain a, a higher level of, of being spiritual, and, and you would need more experience, and it was only the Gnostics that you can come to that would give you this higher understanding and perhaps even this deeper meaning. They promised this special understanding, and they appeal to our inclination to, to gravitate towards being better than other people, this elitist instinct oftentimes that can exist within the heart of man. And so the Gnostics began to speak about this other knowledge. But when Paul writes these words as he addresses the church here in this moment, he he speaks about knowledge, but he uses a different word in this instant than the word in which the Gnostics would use. You see on the screen behind me, I'll show you the difference between the two of these that oftentimes when the Gnostics would speak about knowledge, they would use the word gnosis, just simply meaning an, an understanding or, or a revelation, a basic understanding, but, but yet it had with it these implications of a deeper spiritual meaning. And so Paul comes in and he knows that the church has been infiltrated in this moment. And so he says, listen, I'm going to ask that you not be filled just with the the worldly knowledge that the Gnostics are talking about. But he uses a different word, the epigenosis. It's a technical term that exists here in this moment. And we see it elsewhere throughout scripture. And, And what it means is this decisive knowledge of God, which is involved in the conversion of the Christian faith. It's a prayer that that Paul has that they would be filled with with not the the knowledge of the world, but rather the wisdom that can come only from God. The different and distinct revelation that comes from what the Gnostics were proclaiming and what they were advocating. It's a knowledge of the world versus a knowledge of the things of God. And what Paul is saying in this moment is that a knowledge of the things of God is far more important It is far more deeper than what those who would advocate another gospel. We see Paul write elsewhere in the book of Ephesians and talking about this knowledge and revelation. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus, the glorious father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. In the midst of sorrow and sadness, In the midst of sickness and despair, what Paul prays for is not those necessarily immediate needs. He doesn't pray for the physical health. He doesn't pray for the well-being and social relationships, but, but rather what he prays for is their own, as a church collectively, their spiritual growth. Understanding the difference between the knowledge of the world and the knowledge of God. Understanding that that the culture that exists before us, it can be savvy and smart and it can teach us things at times and we shouldn't isolate and run from it. But yet at the same time, we must understand that God has given us through Christ a different kind of knowledge, a different kind of understanding. And every believer should be able to filter his culture's seductive gnosis through the grid of God's epigenosis. 
that we would filter the ways of the world through the word and the revelation that he has given in this. That we would be able to discern what it is that God wants for our life, namely to be transformed into the image of Christ. And that we would therefore, because of that transformation, because of that knowledge, we see in verse 10, why? Why does Paul pray that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom so that they would walk in a manner worthy of our Lord? They'd be full of his knowledge, full of his wisdom so that they would walk in a way that referring to their conduct before man. That their conduct and and their behavior, the the words of their mouths and the meditations of their heart would be different than the world in which they find themselves living in. That they would be a, a changed people. Paul later goes on in Colossians 2 and he says, as you have therefore received Christ, so walk in him. That their right belief and their right understanding would would lead to to a place where, where there would be right action. You see, true spiritual knowledge for Paul always leads to the right action. He understood that that if you rightly understand the word of God, you're going to walk in a way that reflects the word that you just read and understand. And until you walk in the way that that demonstrates that what you say and proclaim that you believe, that that it reflects what it is that you you say you you know and, and you've learned, then you really haven't learned and you really don't know if your actions don't follow up with what you proclaim and, and say and tell yourself in your heart. And so Paul was identifying in this brief moment this unhealthy dichotomy that often exists between those who have knowledge and who sit on that knowledge and it leads to no action. Yet at the same time, we can be very actionable people and we can mean well, but we don't have the knowledge. And and what Paul advocates elsewhere in his letters is that we would be a knowledgeable and discerning people full of wisdom before the Lord and understanding that that knowledge and that understanding that it leads us to a place of right action. That what we do what we say, how we treat one another, how we love our neighbors, that those things rightly reflect the the doctrine that we hold and the gospel that we believe. Theologians put it a different way. They would say that our orthodoxy, our doctrine, it ought to impact our orthopraxy. Our doctrine rightly understood as as being testified throughout the ages, what we believe about God and and Christ and man and all of these things and the implication that it ought to deeply affect how we practice and live our lives this side of eternity. To say it a different way, right doctrine should always impact right practice. But I want you to notice what Paul's prayer was that they would increase in the knowledge of God that they would bear fruit in every good work. They would naturally open themselves to growing in the knowledge of God and creating this spiral that the the more they they knew God and understood God and understand him as he reveals himself in his word, that that they become different people because of it. And so it's why here, one of our core values is we, we simply advocate what we just call biblical faithfulness. 
That we want to be a, a people that are biblically faithful to what God has called us to be and as he has revealed himself in his word. And so we want to be a people that, that walks under the authority of God's word and submits to the authority of God's word. Why? Because verse 11 goes on and he says, in doing these things, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and with joy. The reason why Paul prays that they would be strengthened with the knowledge of his will according to Christ is because in so doing that, being strengthened with his knowledge before the world, you will then receive the endurance and you will then receive the patience. That if you're full of the knowledge of his will, full of the spirit of God that exists within your life, then, then you will be able to receive the endurance and you will receive the patience because friend, if, if you have uh, been living in a, a cave over the past years, you know that troubling times are, are always just before us. Hardships and, and heartache, they, they're always just around the corner. Conflict always exists. It's always there. And so we constantly should be praying, God, would you fill us with the knowledge of your will that we would receive the patience and the endurance when the troubling times come. When the conflict comes with a friend or a spouse, when the conflict comes at work and the hardship comes your way, that you would be so filled with the knowledge of his will being transformed into the image of Christ that you would then receive the ability to endure, not because of who you are, but because of the work of God in your life. Because you're full of the knowledge of his will. And therefore then you have the patience and therefore you have the endurance. Paul is speaking in this moment in verse 11, he is speaking to the steadfastness that we receive that enables us to, to really hold the line, if you will, of our, of our position in the midst of hardship. In this particular instance, he has in mind these Gnostics that are coming in and infiltrating the church and speaking and preaching this false doctrine. He's saying, hold the line. Be full of the knowledge of his will and, and hold your, your course, steady your aim and, and to, to trust and to rest in that moment of hardship and heartache, to rest in that moment of great despair and just simply to trust him, to hold the line, be full of the knowledge of his will. This perhaps could be one of the most important prayers that any of us could ever pray for one another. Not that we would just have endurance and not that we would just have perseverance, but that we would be full of the knowledge of his will, that we'd be strengthened according to his word. It ought to be a prayer that you pray over your spouses and your grandkids. It ought to be a prayer that you pray over your staff and over your Sunday school teachers. It ought to be a prayer that you pray over anyone who is seeking to walk in a manner worthy of our Lord, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. So they would receive the patience and the endurance. They would receive the steadfastness. This past week, I read of a story towards the end of Sir Winston Churchill's life, and he was invited to speak at his alma mater, Harrow. And he was invited to address the students. And this is at the end of his storied life. It was at the end of when he led Britain through their darkest hour and, and perhaps even their finest hour. 
So you can imagine this five foot, five inch bulldog of a man coming up to the podium as all of the students stand there just grasping and and longing to hear anything that he would have to say. And so the writer tells the story that he walks up to the podium and you could hear a pin drop in the room and Churchill gets up there to the pulpit and he says just these words, young men never give Never give up. Never, never, never. And then he sits down. The room was in awe at that moment. But Churchill's lesson was quite simple. To be a determined and to be an individual that had the patience and had the endurance. And for the Christian, it's quite different that when we are filled with his spirit, we, we have this saying, we, we, we understand the word that it says to us over and over and over again. Friend, never give up. Never, 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 never. Why? Because even in the midst of our own unfaithfulness, God is always faithful. Even in the midst of when other people will fail you, God will never fail you. Even in the midst of others that perhaps might let you down or disappoint you, God will never let you down and God will never disappoint you for his ways are not our ways, but his ways are perfect always. And so therefore, because of who he is, we endure up to the very end. We demonstrate patience with one another. As we go on in verse 12 and he says, then you give thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. I wanna draw just a quick distinction here in this moment. He, he says that we give thanks, that we are to be a people full of gratitude for namely three reasons in verses 12, 13, and 14. Number one, we give thanks to the Father. Why? Because he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. Meaning he has brought us into his family and he has given us every good thing that he has to offer. He has given it to us as an inheritance. Because we are his and he is ours. We has, he is the one who has qualified us in the inheritance of the saints. He is the one, secondly, that has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has dealt with our sin by taking out his wrath on his son, the propitiation of our sins. And the scripture says elsewhere that his wrath has been satisfied because it has been absorbed through his son, Jesus. And so today, God is not angry with you. He's not upset with you. He's not disappointed in you. All of that disappointment, all of that upsetting, all of that anger has been dealt with by a holy and righteous God who took all of that wrath and he took it out on his son, Jesus, for you and for me. He is the one that has qualified you. He is the one that has delivered you from the domain. He is the one, thirdly, who has transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. You see, today, those of you who have called upon his name, Those of you who have received the forgiveness of sins, you have been redeemed. And and today you are not living for the things in the kingdom of this world, but rather you are living for the things in the kingdom that is to come. And so he says, church, give thanks. Be a thankful people. Over the past several weeks, I have walked alongside several that have endured quite a bit of hardship. Death and sorrow, sickness and disease, conflict, you, you name it, they've been through it. 
And yet in the moment of that, many of them that I've walked alongside, they have somehow managed in that process to be full of his spirit, drawn to his word, and they have yet, despite terrible things that are before them, they have remained to be a faithful and a thankful people, trusting in the goodness and the kindness of our God. I know there are some of you right now that perhaps are going through something terrible that maybe only you know. You're experiencing hardship and heartache. Your circumstances are not what, they, what you intended them to be. You've seen the erosion of relationships before you, yet in this moment, can I tell you this, that we are not called to be thankful for all circumstances. We are called to be thankful in all circumstances. That we don't have to wish and long for hardships. In fact, we can pray against those things, but yet when we find ourselves in the middle of those things, he is there with us. I was reminded this past week at a funeral on Wednesday, reading Psalm 23, where he makes that statement, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil for you are with me. And I find it interesting that in that moment, in one of our most beloved Psalms, one of the things that was so striking there in that moment is that we walk in in places of hardship and, and heartache, yet Jesus is the one that leads us into those places. Why? So that he can offer and give the comfort in those moments. That he can give and, and distribute the, the peace in the midst of those moments. If we would just be a people who see it and give thanks. If you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear this as Paul prayed this prayer over the church. It points rightly back to the person and the work of Christ. Jesus himself, he knows what it's like in the midst of your hardship. And maybe you're struggling today in, in being a thankful person and, and finding gratitude somewhere in your life. Maybe grief has stricken you. Can I tell you this today that Jesus himself, he knows what it's like to hurt. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. Jesus knows what it's like to be misunderstood. Jesus knows what it's like to be slandered. And he knows what it's like to be lied about. He knows what it's like to be hunted down. Jesus knows what it's like to be broken and hungry and even abused. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He knows what it's like to weep. Friend, we do not serve a savior here today who was unable to sympathize with our wounds, with our weakness, with our disposition. Because he has endured and gone through everything in some form or fashion that you and I have gone through so that he would meet us today in our time of need. And so give thanks, church, to God our Father who has qualified us, who has brought us into the kingdom of light, who has delivered us today from the domain of darkness. Pray with me. Father, you are a good, kind, gracious God. And we pray the prayer that Donald prayed earlier, that Paul echoes here in Colossians, that you would strengthen your church today in this moment through your spirit. With all power, according to your glorious might, so that we would receive patience and we would receive endurance and and we would receive it, Father, with joy, as your word says. Father, I pray that we would be this church that Paul pastorally is to the church, that 
every day since we heard about the work here at Travis Avenue, that we would be a people that doesn't stop and cease to pray for our church faith family. And so Father, would you help us be faithful in that? Thank you for the redemption. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have because of your son, Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray and God's people said, amen. If you're here today and you have never called upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. That those who would believe that Jesus was who he says he was and those who would confess their sins to him can be forgiven of their sins. And anyone who would call upon his name would repent of their sins and just believe that he was who he says he was. You too can be saved. You too can be brought from the domain of darkness into this wonderful light that he gives. So all you have to do is just call upon his name, to call upon his name and be saved. Father, I pray that as we respond in song, that you would move in the hearts of your people. For I ask these things in Christ's name, amen.